to really shape a different direction for our city uh, would be the greatest job uh, and the greatest opportunity of my lifetime. And, and that's really why I'm running, because, you know, I think we have a short amount of time to get some major decisions right about how we finally have a modern and engaged city hall, how we finally begin to eradicate racial inequities that exist in our police department, and how we finally begin to you know, restore and build that trust with our residents to give them hope in the democratic process. And so we got we to make some decisions right now or else we're gonna miss a unique opportunity to truly meet the moment. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and coming to you live from Cleveland as well. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Justin Bibb, and Justin is running for mayor of Cleveland. Justin is a proud Cleveland native who grew up in Mount Pleasant on the southeast side of the city, and he's dedicated his career to rebuilding neighborhoods and making cities safer, healthier, and more resilient through his work at the intersection of government, business, and nonprofits. He currently serves as the Chief Strategy Officer of Urban Nova, a startup focused on solving the unique challenges faced by mid-sized cities. He interned for President Barack Obama when he was in the U.S. Senate and has served as a Special Assistant for Cuyahoga County, head of the Global Cities Practice at Gallup, and most recently, as Vice President for KeyBank. He co-founded Hack Cleveland back in 2014 following the death of Tamir Rice, and launched Cleveland Can't Wait in 2019, a nonprofit focused on advancing racial equity and economic opportunity in underserved neighborhoods across the city. Justin is deeply committed to Cleveland, serving on the boards of the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority, of Teach for America in Ohio, Destination Cleveland, and Land Studio. We cover a lot of topics here in this conversation as we explore his vision for the city and platform, and I hope you all enjoy and learn more about Justin's mayoral candidacy. Given the nature of what we'll be talking about here today, namely your mayoral platform and and vision that you have for the city, instead of diving straight into Cleveland entrepreneurship and topics that we would normally cover on the show, I wanted to start just riffing on some things that I have noticed as a citizen of Cleveland. So I moved to Cleveland from New York City just over four years ago now. I moved to Statler Arms on East 12th and Euclid right in the, the heart of downtown Cleveland. And just in the four years that I've been here, I have seen the city transform in incredibly exciting and positive ways. But I have also become very aware of the severity and breadth of the systemic and historical challenges that the city faces from institutionalized racism as one of the most segregated cities in the country to the highest poverty rates in the country to the highest infant mortality rates in the country to the worst digital divide and internet connectivity in the country and a relative dearth of public transportation and accessibility coverage. And I I don't mean to to set the most somber stage here to to start the conversation, but I I don't think anyone would disagree the challenges the city faces are substantial. Um, But even with that and having been made aware of that Cleveland reality, I remain really truly optimistic and, and think there's such an incredible opportunity here in Cleveland Uh, which is really why I'm excited to have you on and to learn more about the direction that you would like to take Cleveland. And so in the spirit of startups and founding stories, though, you know, why is it that you are running for mayor and and what is the actual vision that you have for the city? 
Jeff, I mean, I think you set you set my why very clearly you know, on your opening comments. You know, there are we have structural systemic problems facing Cleveland that we've yet to make significant headway on. The poorest big city in America, uh, nearly 50% of our kids are living in poverty, the least connected in terms of the digital divide. And, you know, being one of the you know, most, you know, economically segregated cities in this country leads you to believe that until we fix these structural problems, Cleveland will never be able to live up to its true potential. And so when I think about the, the enormity and the weight of these challenges, before we can talk about any grand policy idea to solve public education, to eradicate the digital divide, to uplift black women across our city, there's one thing we need. We need a sense of urgency and we need to have the political will in this community to actually want to tackle some of these problems. Uh, and, and, and essentially that's why I'm running. You know, the, the slogan for our campaign is Cleveland can't wait. And I believe it can't wait. And 18 months ago, uh, when I was talking to a number of, of leaders and, and other community uh, folks across the city about my desire to run, I got a lot of great feedback. I got a lot of uh, shut doors in my face, told me I was crazy that I, I should wait and run for city council or run for the state legislature. And, you know, um, I decided that um, I couldn't wait because what Cleveland needs to truly, I think, be the city in my heart that I wanted to be, be the city that I've always dreamed about from my days of growing up on, on Mount Pleasant on 121st and Dove to, you know, whenever I'm traveling across the country and, and I've lived in other cities across the country and, and across the world, I always compare it to Cleveland because I'm like, oh, what if we did this in Cleveland or what if we did that? <laughs> and to be able to, to lead this city and build a team and to bring residents along the way to really shape a different direction for our city uh, would be the greatest job uh, and the greatest opportunity of my lifetime. And, and that's really why I'm running, because, you know, I think we have a short amount of time to get some major decisions right about how we finally have a modern and engaged city hall, how we finally begin to eradicate racial inequities that exist in our police department and how we finally begin to you know restore and build that trust with our residents to give them hope and the democratic process. And so we got to We got to make some decisions right now or else we're going to miss a unique opportunity to truly meet the moment. So there's truly infinite things we can cover here. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to cover a few topics specifically. And, and given kind of the focus uh, of this podcast, uh, I want to start with, you know, technology initiatives and, and entrepreneurship. So, so when I had moved to Cleveland, I was working out of Start Mart, which was a, a co-working space in the second floor of Terminal Tower in, in Tower City. It has since unfortunately closed, um, but it made way for efforts like City Block, which was proposed then and kind of painted this picture of a bold, radical technology first, uh, entrepreneurial repurposing of, of that space. And we don't have to talk specifically about City Block, but just in my time here, I've noticed that there have long been talk about these kind of grand flagship projects like City Block, Blockland, the Opportunity Corridor, the Medical Mart, which is now the Global Center for Health Innovation, most recently the Innovation District, but, but really these efforts to revitalize Cleveland. And, and I would love to, to get your perspective on these kinds of initiatives and, and ultimately what kind of initiatives would you prioritize to drive equitable economic development and, and foster technology and entrepreneurship? Jeff, you talked about a laundry list of good ideas and good projects 
and good strategies and good plans. But in my time in Cleveland and uh, since I've been back uh, since 2014, the one thing I've learned is that Cleveland has become a place where good plans go to die. (laughs) We love having great plans. And for a long time as a city, we've been intoxicated with this, let's build it and they will come mentality. The Global Center for Health and Innovation is a prime example of that. We can't expect a building to be the silver bullet to solve our economic problems. Yet, we're really good at collaborating and finding the resources to do those kind of projects. But imagine where we would be uh, now that, you know, if instead of building the medical mart and spending a half a billion dollars, a public subsidy, what if we would have took that half a billion dollars and focused it on early childhood education? Or what if we would have focused on building a half a billion dollar access to capital fund for black and brown businesses in our in our cities to make sure that we're actually creating true community wealth in some of our forgotten neighborhoods like where I grew up on the southeast side. We'd be a completely different place. And what makes Silicon Valley a great place pre-COVID was the fact that it was a culture of innovation. It was a culture of risk taking. It was a culture of collaboration. And there was a sense of heightened urgency to, to go out to the marketplace and scale and try new ideas. We don't have that in Cleveland. And until we fix that, we'll never be able to achieve some of these longer term expectations and goals we have around inclusive entrepreneurship and truly being a globally competitive city. So it's those fundamentals of of changing the mindset we have to do to make sure to do that on a long-term basis. Yeah. So if, you know, in the proverbial road to hell paved with good intentions, that maybe a lot of these ideas were, how in practice do you go about the execution and and the follow through on, on, on those kinds of ideas? Well, you know, um, running to be the CEO of the city, I have to set the culture and the tone and, and make sure that, number one, I'm building a best in class cabinet in City Hall that shares my sense of urgency, that shares my values around transparency and collaboration. Uh, and I want to make sure I have a leadership team um, that understands how to execute effectively and how to bring residents along in the process, uh, but also I want to have a cabinet that's not afraid to take risks and not afraid to try new ideas. And so how having a best in class team around me and attracting a talented leadership staff, I think is, is, a, is a key ingredient to that. I say the second thing is, you know, what I've learned in my career working in, in corporate America is you got to invest in your employees. You think about, you know, the fact that there are hundreds of admirable, great public servants working in City Hall right now that would love to do uh, their job in a more innovative way, but they don't have the tools to do that. And so I want to make sure as mayor that I'm investing in my employees and I'm working directly with my employees, particularly our frontline uh, service workers inside City Hall to solicit their ideas on how we make sure uh, we, we, we have a, a best in class city that's providing high quality city services for our residents. And then I would also say, you know, on the technology piece, you think about the ability for Cleveland to be a leader in smart cities. You know, I spent a lot of my time working with other mayors across the country on how to upgrade legacy internal technology systems to improve service delivery. 
everything from the fact that our website we have right now in City Hall is from the 2000s Bush era and it has been updated uh, uh, over the last 15 years to the fact that, you know, if you wanted to get a permit to start a small business or put a new roof on your uh, on, on your garage and your home, you got to go down to City Hall, fill out a lot of paperwork, talk to a handful of people, and you have no idea when things are going to get done to finish your permit. That would never succeed uh, or work in the private sector. And so how do we start to take some of these best-in-class operating models and around customer service as well and embed those practices inside City Hall to make sure we're doing everything we can to do more with less, but also being as innovative as possible because those inefficiencies that we see inside City Hall only exacerbate the inequities that exist in our city. So there's material cost to not getting the basics right. Yeah, there, there's a few threads there that I, I want to pull on. You know, one is this, you know, you mentioned collaboration with uh, with other mayors. I, I know Mayor Suarez down yeah. in Miami, Florida has been- He's a great guy, by the way. Awesome guy. <laughs> he seems it from afar on Twitter. That's a, yeah. as I had a chance I got. to uh, work with him um, and, a, and, a, and a dozen other mayors um, when I was doing some work at Gallup with the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and we were trying to figure out how to build a racial equity uh, framework for mayors to think about how to prioritize what technology to invest in around smart cities efforts. And so he's, he's been on the, on the front lines of this work for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like he may have followed that, that playbook. But, you know, I, I've been from afar again observing that, you know, an explicit call, a recruitment almost of technology firms, scale-ups, venture capitalists, to like more far out there ideas like direct government investment and Bitcoin, you know, and not that that needs to be the playbook here or that makes sense to be the playbook here, but, you know, your perspective and take on how do we make Cleveland alluring to people as part of a technology forward and, and kind of innovation forward platform and solution. I think that there, there are a couple of things on that point, Jeff, we should think about. I think number one, I was having a fantastic conversation uh, with the leader of Tech Elevator, uh, and, and he had this quote that has just been on my mind over the last couple of weeks. He says that cognitive ability was spread evenly across our city, but access to opportunity was not. And, you know, that hit home for me because when I think about the kids I grew up with on Dove, you know, they were just as smart or smarter than me. But there were instances in their life where things didn't work out. They got caught up in the criminal justice system or their parents lost their jobs so they couldn't afford to stay in their home. So they went from house to house and they, or they didn't go to a good you know, quality school. And I was blessed where although I went through a whole lot growing up in the city, you know, my mom and my dad, although they were divorced, made sure I kept myself busy, whether I was singing in the church choir joining the science club, doing the spelling bee, I was doing something. And unfortunately, uh, when, you, when you look across the city, particularly in some of our most forgotten neighborhoods, you haven't seen that concerted investment in making sure these kids have access to op opportunity. I mean, there's an old saying in my neighborhood, you are what you see. And, you know, uh, during, my, during my time with my nonprofit, Cleveland Can't Wait, you know, we work with a number of different high school students to give them the venture development skills they needed to learn how to grow and start a business. 
And I remember on our first day, uh, kicking off the program, I asked them, what's an entrepreneur? A lot of them couldn't answer the question. But when I put up Zuckerberg, oh, the Facebook guy. I pull up LeBron or Rich Paul. Oh, yeah, they're building clutch sports. They're doing some you know, really cool stuff. And I'm like, well, you know, you can do that, too. They're like, oh, I can be an entrepreneur. I'm like, yeah, let me, let me show you how. So you see, it's a mindset issue. And I think until we start to have those intentional early conversations with our kids, then we're going to continue to miss out on the untapped opportunity that exists in our city. And so I'm not saying we shouldn't be as aggressive as we can to attract new VC investment and to make sure that we have a smart, coordinated and connected ecosystem for tech talent. But I also want to make sure that we are investing in homegrown talent, too, because there are billion dollar companies waiting to be built on the streets of Dove and on the streets of Clark Fulton. But those kids haven't figured out how they can do it. And they're waiting for that shot. And we got to figure out as leaders how to give them that shot. Yeah. And those ideas, culture of innovation, access to opportunity, a sense of urgency, I think are really the perfect segue to, to talk about this severe problem of the digital divide. Yeah. Um, and I, I'd love if if you could just for the audience explain really what what's going on in Cleveland with regards to the digital divide and and you know we can talk about addressing it but but really just kind of laying the the problem out here so we are the least connected city in America which means that a low percent of our population have access to high speed broadband and what we've seen during covid-19 is having access to high speed broadband it's table stakes it's it's a matter of whether or not you can work every day it's a matter of not uh, if your kid can hop on a Zoom and go to school. Uh, the fact that about a third of our kids haven't logged online in Cleveland who go to CMSD uh, should outrage everybody. The fact that we've lost over 8,000 kids right now during COVID-19 to other school districts should outrage everybody. And this is a, a challenge that we weren't prepared for. And I started to recognize this in 2014. Uh, when a group of us got together to co-found Hack Cleveland, uh, which is really focused on how do we connect underserved communities of color to the digital economy? And we couldn't we could barely get a meeting with city leadership to talk about this issue. Uh, and, you know, we were we were seven years behind having a strategy to solve this problem. And so, you know, what you've seen in other cities is they've started to, you know, patchwork together. Uh, city infrastructure and non-city infrastructure uh, to address the digital divide. So let me give you an example. Um, first and foremost, uh, you think about all the street lights we have in Cleveland. Just last year, uh, we had a you know we spent a significant amount of resources to upgrade 61,000 street lights across our city, and we could have put uh, cellular devices in there to have Wi-Fi hotspots in those street lights to connect those homes in proximity to those streetlights. But we didn't do it. And it would have been a cost neutral investment. Uh, but in a city like San Jose, California, for example, you know, they are looking at, okay, every time we upgrade a streetlight, let's put a smart note, note in there. And then let's call AT&T Verizon to see if they can have some connectivity with the fiber they have or other uh, uh, main, main wire lines they're connecting to ensure that if they're doing any kind of infrastructure upgrade, the digital divide is a part of that, that solution. 
it's 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 been done in other cities and it's something we should be trying to do in Cleveland. Uh, but until we find a way to connect those dots, I don't think we'll be able to, to solve the problem uh, moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it, the the severity of the problem really has been amplified yeah. over over the last year. I mean, the I think the UN has classified it as a public utility. It, it's yeah. just really, I think, table stakes is the the right way to think about it. One thing that that you mentioned there that I I'm curious about is how you think about the role of the government versus the role of the private sector mm. um, in, in you know collaboration, but but working to address you know not just the digital divide, but but you know a lot of these macro larger scale problems that uh, that we face. You know, Jeff, I think it's important. When thinking about the role of government, it's important to be very clear and not naive about the fact that these structural systemic issues are going to need support from other sectors to solve them. Government can't solve these problems alone. You know, we, we only have a $1.8 billion budget, and that is a finite amount of resources to tackle systemic structural issues from the digital divide to segregation in housing to segregation and access to capital and banking services. And so these are multi-sector problems that require multi-sector solutions. We need to be clear about that. The other thing I would say is that my philosophy as a leader and as mayor, my philosophy will really be about smart government, right? So what does that mean to me? Number one, it means how do I work with the private sector to make sure uh, that I'm getting the best ideas I can and leveraging their, 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 their infrastructure to solve some of these problems. You know, so how can I call the CEO of Eaton and talk about a major engineering issue we're having in City Hall? And do you have some talent I can deploy on that problem as mayor? Or can I call the CFO at KeyBank and say, you know, I really want to make sure that the city have, has a strong bond rating so that I can go and tap into the capital markets and put together a nice bond package to uh, revitalize our infrastructure over the next decade. Do you have some smart guys on muni debt and muni financing I can talk to to make sure that we have the right strategy in place? That's smart government. And that is making sure we're, we're bringing all the talent we have in our community to the table to solve these conversations. You know, I would also say, you know, one of the major opportunities we have right now is with our strong foundation sector. You think about the millions of dollars that Cleveland Foundation and Gun deploy to address some of these issues. How do we work more uh, in tandem with those foundations uh, to get more collective impact so we can actually you know, move the needle in a more systemic way? And those are all things we need to be exploring as we think about the next chapter of, of, of Cleveland's uh, renaissance. Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. So like I mentioned, there are truly unlimited topics here, but I'm going to yeah. focus uh, <laughs> Next, just on uh, another one that I, I think has been really interesting for me to observe, again, as someone who's moved here relatively recently um, from, from New York City. And, and to this day, the most surprising thing that I've learned about Cleveland is that with a population, what, in, in the ballpark of like 380, 400,000 folks, <laughs> is that the number of people who live in downtown Cleveland is 20,000. And that is double what it was just a decade ago. Yeah. And then on top of that, the number of people who work downtown is over 100,000. Yeah. And so that, that kind of framework of the quantity and the magnitude of the influx on a daily basis, I think, speaks to 
a lot of topics that, that I w- I'm very curious to get your take on. But really spanning housing and, and transportation, it, it touches on the geographic tension in Cleveland between the city and the mm-hmm. suburbs. And, and so I'd love to start maybe with just how can we expand supply across the board? And you know, given your, your prior work with the RTA, would love to just understand your vision for transportation and mobility and, and, and housing. Mm. So on the supply side issue, I think that the first thing we should be focused on is how do we diversify the housing stock that exists in Cleveland. I've lived downtown for the last seven years, and I would say one of the things I continue to be frustrated with is the lack of ownership available in downtown. If I wanted to buy a condo downtown, there are a finite amount of uh, rent of units for me to be able to do that. And we need to make sure that we are diversifying the housing stock in areas like downtown. In areas like the southeast side and the east side of the city, you know, we have a number of different uh, abandoned lots and vacant properties. And I think having a more streamlined approach for residents to be able to buy those uh, vacant homes and, and also acquire those abandoned lots would really go a long way. And not only diversifying uh, diversifying our housing stock, but also it could be a great path to build more community wealth in those neighborhoods. Because we know that home ownership is one of the biggest drivers of long-term wealth creation that we see. And when you look at the, the racial wealth gap that exists between whites and blacks, you know, it's massive. Uh, and, you know, the housing prices and housing values rather on the east side of the city haven't really recovered since the Great Depression. Like they have recovered and have appreciated and on, and on a tremendous scale on some areas of the west side of our city. So there's a massive divide there. And as mayor, I have to do everything I can to work with uh, investors to make sure that we are having a very uh, deliberate allocation of incentives to address these fundamental market challenges and problems. Because what's gonna work in Mount Pleasant doesn't necessarily is gonna work in Tremont. And we need to be clear about that. To your second point on transit, you know, we're the poorest big city in America, as as I mentioned before, uh, and housing and transit are the two biggest uh, expenses for working class folks across the city. I think we need to think about, you know, how do we find different revenue streams uh, to subsidize free or um, uh, highly subs- uh, highly discounted uh, transit uh, for our most disadvantaged residents? And I think one possible solution for that could be finally upgrading our parking meters and making them smart meters uh, and making sure that you don't need uh, quarters or and dimes and nickels to pay for parking downtown. You can use your smartphone, use your credit card, pay for parking, and then we'll see, you know, increased revenue as a city. And we can invest those revenues to invest in transit and invest in multi-modal solutions uh, for, for, for our city and our region. The other thing I, I see, I, I, I want to see is more collaboration. Now, I've been on the board of RTA for the last uh, two years, uh, and I think uh, the new CEO, India Birdsong, has done a tremendous job of restructuring RTA and repositioning the organization 
uh, for a more competitive future. And I, I think enhancing the collaboration between the mayor, the head of RTA, and the county really go a long way uh, to address some of the transit issues we see in the city and the region. And that's why as mayor, I'm going to work to create an office of transit and mobility to make sure we can start to convene and coordinate some of these resources to invest in complete streets, to finally have a, a pathway to create a 15 minute city in Cleveland, and to make sure we have highly affordable connected network where our residents can hop on a bus or hop on rail to get to a job, or they want to walk to a job or bike to a job, our infrastructure is built in order to do that. One of the, uh, the technology infrastructure challenges that I, I keep thinking about and that I, I would like to get your perspective on as well is, you know, when you think about these large scale government deployments, yeah. which are often built to last multiple decades, you know, potentially even centuries, you know, you think the, the West Side market just hit 100 years recently. How you think about the infrastructure, you know, that you put in place will be able to adapt to what has clearly been an exponential rate of change of new technology mm-hmm. development and, and scale rapidly and kind of accommodate, you know, what is increasingly a technology driven world and, and at the same time ensuring that, uh, you know, people involved aren't, aren't left behind. And again, just always with the consideration for equity across these, these can developments. You, can, you, can you give me a concrete example of what, what you're thinking about? Yeah, I'm just, you know, pulling from from some of the developments I've seen more recently in in New York, for example. You know, the High Line is a, you know, a recent development taking some of this old, you know, infrastructure. People had really negative connotations of the area and the space and and really turning it into something beautiful that I think will stand the test of time and has ultimately become one of the primary tourist attractions in Manhattan over the last decade now. Um and so just just thinking about how you know, what you put in place in the next four years could have implications, you know, 100 years down the road. Jeffrey, yeah, I think what you're getting at is how do you build things that last, right? Yeah. And I think there are a couple of things. I think, number one, you need to bring residents along in the process so they have buy-in. We do a terrible job of that in Cleveland. And regardless of what you think about the, the quick and loan deal we saw a couple of years ago, the fact that voters are so frustrated with the lack of community engagement in that process uh, speaks to a breakdown of trust and community engagement. And so as mayor, I would do everything I can to prioritize resident voice and giving residents a seat at the table on those major uh, infrastructure or development initiatives uh, across the entire city. I think, secondly, uh, we have to be okay with asking for help and bringing in expertise. As mayor, it's my job to, you know, figure out what the answer is and build the team to figure out what the answers are as well, right? Um, and the High Line's a prime example in New York where you, you source best-in-class ta- best talent and best-in-class ideas and put together a strategy and you, you get the High Line. Uh, and, you know, this is a place where I think being able to find a best in class operator to manage the West Side market uh, is a prime example. Or, you know, we are able to bring in a best in class designer for public square, but yet the city has dropped the ball in terms of how we continue to program and manage public square. 
And so these are prime examples of not being afraid to collaborate, not being afraid to ask for help, but also not being afraid to bring residents along in the process really go a long way. You brought up something that I, I wanted to to touch on next. You know, as as much as important as it is to to build things uh, to last, you know, it's it's just as important I think to keep things that were built to last lasting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know, like again, when, when I moved here, some of the things that really just kind of blew me away, especially in downtown, where you know, as I explored it, walking through the arcade and like. It's it is the most gorgeous thing yeah. I've ever seen. You but imagine like, that being in New York and how busy that would be? Unbelievable. I, or, can't, I can't even imagine. Or imagine if we were able to transform parts of Chelsea Market to the West Side Market. <laughs> right. Or Union Market in D.C. And what, what frustrates me, Jeff, is these are all things we can do, right? And, and we just have to continue to kind of, you know, try to get that cultural shift uh, to try some of these things that have been done. And we won't succeed at everything, and that's okay. But we have to try. And it's this lack of being able, wanting to try that just continues to frustrate me. Mm. Yeah, and I would, I would love to see you know a lot more people in the arcade. It's yeah. When, when I when I get people to to come visit me in Cleveland, and I show them, I just do a walking tour of downtown. Crazy idea. I might not be too crazy, but you know, pre-COVID, I used to love to go to mix at the art museum. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those mix events, Yeah, uh, but it, it's, it is the, a fantastic um, symbol of the power of culture of, in Cleveland and the power of our diversity. And every time I would have folks come in from out of town, I would make sure it was on a Friday when mix. <laughs> yeah. We have, I think one of the best art museums in the world, right in our backyard. And, you know, we learned how to program that space to make it a place where every Cleveland from all walks of life can come together and really celebrate and, and, and have joy uh, in, in, in this amazing institution. And for the arcade, you know, um, think about, you know, in a pre-COVID world and maybe in a post-COVID world, we can pull this off. But being able to have a, a version of mix in the arcade after work on Fridays where you have frontline city employees coming off from City Hall. Uh, having a beer uh, sponsored by Platform or Saucy Brew or Market Garden. You have a DJ, have some vendors there. Uh, and then you can start to build more community with, with folks who, who live downtown and also for the workers who may not live downtown, but work there day in and day out. And so these are all creative things we can do to activate our public spaces more uh, to really invigorate our city. Yeah, uh, and it resonates Yearning for a post-COVID world. Yeah, whatever that whatever that looks like. <laughs> whatever that looks like. Yeah. All right. So another another issue that I, I've thought a lot about again over the last four years is I, I have a it's the New Yorker in me that that persists, but I am I do not have a car. And I have not had a car here in Cleveland oh, for wow. the last four years. And where do you live now? I'm over in Ohio City. Oh nice. Great. So I've been taking been taking the RTA in uh, to downtown for work uh, in the winter, I've been biking in the in the warmer in the warmer times, but you know, as I've thought about again, those you know, twenty thousand people living downtown, hundred thousand people commuting in, really, how much of the city is is kind of in this transient mode where you know people live around the the edges and and kind of come in and yeah, it's it it, it was a an idea that was a, just a little new to me again coming from from New York, and so I, I'm curious your perspective on, you know, the geographic division of, mm -hmm. of the city and, and just how, how you're thinking about, 
you know, addressing the, you know, what are, what are ultimately different and diverse groups of, of people and, and, you know, right. Of, of commuters and non-commuters and just the geographic difference of, of the city and how, how large a part of Um, that. Jeff, on this this point, I think it's important to call out a couple of things to set the context. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because of redlining, we had massive white flight. At one point in time, Cleveland had a in the core population of, of one point, you know, two million people living in the core of the city. Then you have white flight that occurs due to the Civil Rights Act and the massive reforms you, you saw to eradicate Jim Crow. And you know, I think about the fact that when my grandma, my grandpa came back from World War II, he fought like everybody else who fought. But when he couldn't, when he came back from the war, he couldn't get a GI. He couldn't get. He didn't have access to the GI Bill. He couldn't go and have, have an FHA loan to, to buy a home uh, to start to build wealth for our family. He, he was locked out from that. And that's the story of many black Americans across the city. And we continue to see the ramifications of that right now. So even the, the maps in which we make investments in the city have the built in biases rooted in redlining and, and the segregation that's occurred because of that. And so the, the makeup of our community right now is a direct consequence of those decisions. Mm-hmm. And so we need to, number one, reset the maps and draw new maps and start to, you know, force investment in places to truly, you know, undesign the red line. And that's a, 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 actually a, a couple of years ago, Cleveland Boats did an amazing job of showcasing this exhibit called um, uh, focus on the red line. And, you know, it, it, it's really it was so important to think about how we start to, to, to undesign our thinking and the structural barriers that have plagued our community for far too long when it comes to racial segregation and economic segregation as well, too. I would also say this is a, a cultural problem we need to address. You know, as a kid growing up in, on, in Mount Pleasant, I didn't go to the West Side Market until I was a junior in high school. Right. My, my dad told me yeah. I could go to Little, Little Italy because it was known as a racist neighborhood. And so and there are still many Clevelanders who feel that way about certain parts of, of our city. I was just having a conversation with, with a good buddy of mine and I was telling him about my favorite barbecue spot, Mount Pleasant Barbecue. And he's like, you know, I've never been to that part of the city. And he's you know lived in Cleveland all his life. So until we both get out of our comfort zones, black and white east side and west side, and really explore, then we'll never be able to solve this problem. I would also say it's important that the city play a large role in reinvesting in neighborhoods that have been forgotten and being very intentional of doing it and prioritizing equity and centering those investments around equity because all of those things are interconnected. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you set that context there. Yeah. I want to revisit something that you actually brought up earlier, which was this kind of external collaboration. Mm. And, you know, as much as these are challenges that we face here in Cleveland, there are challenges that, you know, our, our neighboring adjacent, you know, cities uh, face in similar capacities as well. And um, so I, I'd love to, you know, hear your, your kind of approach on collaboration or, you know, working with Akron, Columbus, Pittsburgh, Toledo, Detroit, as part of the larger region uh, around us and kind of opportunity 
you, you see for Cleveland to, to, to work with those cities? Well, uh, the first thing we have to do is have, we have to want the desire to collaborate. And that's the first thing. Um, the fact that Cleveland is not a part of the Ohio's Marriage Alliance is a problem. Uh, the fact that we're not advocating for our city on, at the national stage uh, with the U.S. Conference of Mayors, that's a problem. And so as mayor, I intend to, to really use the bully pulpit of the mayor's office to make sure Cleveland has a seat at the table at the state and federal level uh, to make sure we're getting our fair share uh, of the resources we deserve as a city. I would also say, you know, the best way for us to change is to think about what's worked and what hasn't worked in other cities that look like us. You know, I, I'm really excited to see the leadership of uh, Mayor Dan Horgan in Akron and what he's done uh, to really begin to change the story of Akron. I really love what him and his team have done around their new office of integrated development, which truly, you know, um, tries to streamline economic and community development and integrate it with enhancing the urban experience in Akron. And it's a model that I think we should we should explore in Cleveland. Uh, you think about Columbus, uh, the fact that Columbus was able to really convene the private and public sector together to compete uh, for uh, the major smart cities initiative prize that came out in the Obama administration. And they've been using uh, the Smart Columbus Initiative to think about how to use mobility uh, and, and as a way to address infant mortality in some of the most underserved communities in Columbus. It's a great North Star. It's a great example for Cleveland to take a look at as we think about how to really you know, leverage issues around mobility to support black women to address infant mortality crisis in Cleveland. And so there's a lot of good examples uh, to learn from. And we need to we just need to make sure we need to make sure we have a leadership in City Hall that's going to prioritize collaboration and not be afraid to look outside of Cleveland for good ideas. Yeah. The other topic here I, I wanted to come back to was one of, you know, as important as it is to attract outside talent, really, you know, how do we raise up and, and cultivate, you know, the talent and, and people that we have here in Cleveland. Um, and with that, there's been this challenge, coined the, the brain drain, if you will, mm -hmm. of, you know, people who grow up in, in cities like Cleveland who post-graduation are, you know, for good reason, attracted to, to cities elsewhere, you know, recruited by the larger tech firms or, you know, the opportunities um, that, that they find elsewhere. And it's, a, again, a problem that, you know, some of our, the, those neighboring cities we just mentioned uh, face as well. But how do you tackle the, the brain drain, the, the idea that we're going to lose some of those folks that, you know, we have brought up and raised up and are those probably, you know, some of the best of, of who we have to, to offer here and to, to other places. We do a terrible job of telling our story as a city. You know, um, if you're not from Cleveland and you come here and you live here, you begin to see all the great assets this community has. And you're like, how come no one's ever told me about this? It's actually not. <laughs> right. Right. It's not. This is where I think we've failed in so many ways of really telling our story authentically. And it's OK to admit that we have we're not perfect, but we have to do a better job of telling our story. I think first and foremost, as a city. The other thing I would say is for for a long time, Cleveland has been a place where, you, you know, you can be born here, raised here but it's a place you leave and never come back to. 
And, you know, until we find a way to create a more vibrant economy to attract dynamic employers and really grow uh, our, our city, then I think it'll continue to be a major problem. And one of the drivers of that, I think, is lack of, of, of quality public education in Cleveland. We lose many families uh, in the urban core to the surrounding suburbs because of our school district. And, you know, we've made some, some really good strides over the last decade or so, but the patient change inside of our public uh, school district has not happened fast enough, in my opinion. And we need to do a better job of really connecting our public education system to our workforce economic development system as well. And I believe having a, a K-12 system in Cleveland that not only prioritize, you know, getting a four-year degree, but also we need to make sure that we, uh, you know, have career pathways for kids who don't want to go to college. And that's okay. Yeah. And we need to be okay with that. And until we fix these the structural problem of workforce readiness, then I think we'll continue to have this, this long-term macroeconomic issue of our inability to attract large-scale employers uh, to come to Cleveland. But it also affects the, the ability for, you know, that gazelle-type company who maybe starts with 10 employees but skyrockets to 500 or 1,000 really fast. And they're saying, can I, can I stay here? Do I have the talent to stay here? Think about root insurance out of Columbus. Great example of a gazelle that is, has grown tremendously. Um, and they can stay there because of the talent infrastructure that exists in Columbus. Uh, we, I, we can't say that about Cleveland right now. And so I think we need to fix that structural issue uh, to address this long, long-term headwind of really eradicating the brain drain. Yeah, what, what you mentioned, it just reminded me, like one of the, the questions I always get from from Clevelanders is when I tell them I, I moved here from New York, it's like, why? I got the same thing, man. But why? Like, what, what, what part of the city were you in before you came back? Uh, I grew up in, in Manhattan. Oh, dope. Nice. nice. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I moved to Cleveland and, uh, you know, the as I've been here over the last few years, truly every single person I get to come and visit and show them, there's such a pleasant surprise. Yeah. It's it's because, you know, for not whatever reason, for many historical reasons, the bar at a national level is, is set very which, low. Which, and, which is a great advantage we have that no one really knows yet. Hopefully this podcast doesn't go viral, but <laughs> people have to set expectations so low for Cleveland. And, you know, if we start to address some of these major headwinds and get some momentum on it, man, our potential is unlimited, unlimitless, man. It really is limitless. Well, not to pull the curtain too far back on some of the, <laughs> the secret greatness of Cleveland, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one of the questions that I, I do ask everyone on the show is for their, um, not necessarily their favorite thing about Cleveland, but their favorite hidden gem about Cleveland. Ooh, good question. Great question. Wow. I have two. Is that okay? That's okay. That's okay. Well, um, I talked about this a little bit, but Mount Pleasant Barbecue is is really becoming <laughs> my like go-to spot. I mean, when I lived downtown, when I first moved downtown, Hot Sauce Williams was right on Carnegie, uh, mm-hmm. but they left, and I'm like, man, I don't have like a neighborhood barbecue spot downtown. And so uh, I was doing some organizing and stumbled upon Mount Pleasant Barbecue, and been going once a week ever since. So. That's my new go-to. And then I would say, uh, secondly, Velvet Tango Room. Mm. Got a cool speakeasy vibe. I'm a big speakeasy guy. Yeah, it's a very cool vibe over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great, great choices. 
I guess, given the the nature of what we're talking about here, I don't know. We can cl- we can do closing statements if you want. <laughs> no, <laughs> two two minutes two minutes on the clock. Your mic will be shut off. No, immediately. no, no. I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> if there was one thing I, I would want to tell the viewers out there, we are building something special in this campaign. Since we announced January 12th, we had over 500 volunteers sign up. We had over 60,000 views of our launch video. Out of any other candidate, we've raised the most money from folks who live in the city of Cleveland. And you know we've raised the most money out of any campaign uh, for mayor for a non-incumbent in Cleveland history thus far, over a quarter million dollars in just five months. And so I think that those early signs of momentum speak to the desire for change that people have but also the desire to have a sense of urgency to solve these problems. And so I know I can't wait. I know you can't wait and uh, Cleveland can't wait. And so <laughs> I would invite folks to, you know, learn more about our campaign at uh, bib for CLE.com. And you spell out the F O R C L E.com uh, <laughs> or uh, check us out on social at bib for CLE as well. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook uh, and uh, looking forward to the, to the ride ahead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you you coming on and you know sharing more about yourself and, and vision for the city and, and platform and definitely excited uh, to, to follow along here. Looking forward to it and hopefully I'll be back soon. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So shoot us an email at layoftheland at upside.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland, at thetagan, or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please email us or find us on Twitter and let us know. And if you love our show, please leave a review on iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us spread the word and continue to help bring high-quality guests to the show. Taken Horton and Jeffrey Stern developed the Lay of the Land podcast in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Founders Get Funds and its affiliates or Actual and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.